before we get to our show, here is a podcast we think you're going to love. Hey, I'm Sammy. Ready for something frightful? Come join me and guest narrators as we read real stories from the paranormal. Suddenly their bedroom door handle started being violently janked up and down like someone was having a go at it and then everything just stopped. To creepy encounters with people who have nefarious intentions. And it was the same two people. It turns out those two had connections to a human trafficking ring. Subscribe to the It's Frightful podcast and Apple podcast or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Until next time. It's not like we needed to sleep tonight anyways. Hello and welcome. It's time for Perhaps It's You, your favorite unofficial unsolved mysteries rewatch podcast my name is liz and my name is samantha were you gonna say more i feel like i'm talking weird hi hi friends and enemies. <laughs> you're talking a little slowly i don't know it's almost a sultry voice i don't know what i'm doing we're here this is your unsolved <laughs> mysteries podcast liz i know you have other projects <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah okay hi hi everyone we're here to talk about unsolved mysteries for some reason uh, we're on our sixth season. You think I'd be used to it by now, but whatever. Hey, how's it going? How are you, Samantha? Fine. Happy Easter. Oh, yeah. Happy Easter. A holiday I keep forgetting until, like, randomly you'll be like, oh, yeah, it's Easter. That's <laughs> because you don't get time. You don't get time off work for Easter, so it's just a chore, really. It is. I, although, maybe I should say happy bunny day because it's bunny day in Animal Crossing. That oh, creepy yeah. bunny is visiting your island and that bunny is terrifying. His name is Zipper, which sounds like a serial killer. And also, when he first greeted me, he was literally just dancing by himself to no music in the <laughs> cemetery part of my island. His <laughs> giant uh, uh Okay, I so I recently have been playing a different game on the Switch. I've been playing Mario 3d world which is really fun and so i've kind of neglected animal crossing and i haven't done any of the bunny day stuff until i logged in today for like the official bunny day has he been wandering around your island just randomly no he showed up like a week ago to like tell me hey collect some eggs Mm. but he did that by just like dancing alone in a cemetery (laughs) that's really on brand for zipper because so i mean this is probably gonna we're probably gonna lose some of our listeners who don't play animal crossing at this point but last year at the start of the pandemic when everyone was first getting into animal crossing as an escape from the horrors of reality the bunny day thing was the first holiday in animal crossing and this freaking creepy ass bunny would just like randomly show up on your island and just like creep around (laughs) so you'll just see him in like the background just this horrifying bunny just like creeping around a tree horrible the stuff of nightmares i want that peacock for festivals to come back the sultry peacock that only knew music and dance (laughs) 
I like the peacock. That was a fun, a fun holiday. I'm not big on the bunny day thing, but no, that's just because I'm not big on Easter. Maybe the candy is solid. The color scheme is good, but everything about else about Easter kind of gets a thumbs down for me. Partly because sometimes it falls on my birthday, and that's just unacceptable. True. Not this year, but I'm still bitter. As much as I love the Cadbury mini egg, though. Which I had. That was my breakfast as I had some Cadbury mini eggs. As it should be on Easter. I wish I had some Reese's eggs. Oh, man. Yeah. I had some yesterday, though. Those are solid. Okay. So do you have any updates? Uh, Nope. Okay. Here's my very important update. I watched some videos about coconut crabs yesterday. (laughs) Was this because I sent you that thing? About the coconut crabs crashing someone's barbecue in Australia? I sort of got into this like little um, rabbit hole about how crabs are an evolutionary advantage and like everything's going to evolve into crabs. (laughs) Are we going to evolve into crabs? Well, okay. That's probably an exaggeration, but it's like several things evolve into crabs. I don't know. You look it up. (laughs) But... (laughs) <laughs> that meant that I watched this video, a couple of videos about coconut crabs and how terrifying they are. But I learned that a coconut crab can live up to 120 years. Oh, my God. Which brings me to my update. Time is running out to find the coconut crabs that ate Amelia Earhart. <laughs> we can still bring them to justice. Everyone. They're out there. Smug DNA evidence or something. I don't want. I don't want any coconut crabs being wrongfully convicted of this. They are smug. They got away with it. They are laughing in their little coconut bunkers. They make like these these caves full of the coconut husk. Oh, to like keep. Are you gonna moist. go into one of those caves and just find the bones of Amelia Earhart? That's what we need to do. That's what we need to do to find her. Is anyone her- from Unsolved Mysteries listening? The next the next round of, of reboot episodes should have an episode about <laughs> we need to capture the coconut crabs responsible for this. Yes. And then maybe eat them. I got some you conflict. You can't eat them though. They're in- aren't they endangered? Didn't, didn't I say I that? think they maybe are. Also, sometimes they eat things that make them poisonous. So oh, gotta be careful. Yeah. You gotta be careful about finding the coconut crabs that ate Amelia Earhart's body and cooking them up yourself. <laughs> they need to be on. Tr- we need a trial. You can't just immediately cook them. That's not Samantha, justice. They're crabs. <laughs> <laughs> I think you're forgetting. Or you're gonna get a little crab lawyer. Obviously, a little, a little crab judge in a little judge robe. <laughs> oh, it would look so cute with a gavel, though. It would. It would really. That would really cuten up the coconut crab. They're hideous. I saw. So what I mentioned was that I, I was just randomly scrolling through Facebook, and someone I'm friends with had shared this post about this family in Australia that were having a barbecue, and apparently the scent of the barbecuing meat attracted 50 coconut yeah. crabs, and they were just like around the fire with these people, like begging, like dogs beg for food, <laughs> but it's just a bunch of coconut crabs. The post said, don't worry, they're harmless, but we all know different. Yeah, harmless, except that they're strong enough to break coconuts. So this doesn't sound very harmless to me. Also, yeah, hideous. So, 
a crime against my eyes. <laughs> I was also wondering if we should talk about that Zoom seance that we did a oh, little while back while we were on an unexpected hiatus. Samantha and I, you know, we, we, we try to learn. We try to expand our wealth of knowledge that we bring to this podcast Mm -hmm. we previously talked about that zoom class we did on ghost investigations which i loved and wished was longer (laughs) it was delightful the ladies that put that on were pure delight to talk to uh in stark contrast (laughs) is the zoom seance we did a couple weeks later yeah Uh, not not all of our adventures uh, are successful. <laughs> Maybe that's the way to phrase it. Mm-hmm. And so I signed us up for a Zoom seance, which was supposed to be a class. It was supposed to teach you about seances, but also everybody was going to have a chance to like ask questions of the other side. I was like, great. This is a great thing for Samantha and I to do to learn while we're still stuck indoors, right? We can't, we can't do a ghost tour right now. We can't uh, go to a museum. We'll, we'll do this. Sure. And um, this person is well known. Like it wasn't like a rando we found. Right. Like it seemed legit. <laughs> well, oh boy. <laughs> Where to even begin? I. How many minutes in were we before you went? This is a total fraud. Uh, about two minutes in, because yeah. this this yeah. person opened by singing the praises of a certain spiky-haired ghost <laughs> investigator on always, the Travel Channel. Always suspicious when someone starts off by saying, what a class act Zach Baggins is. <laughs> Not so, a good sign. That was about when I my eyebrows raised. But then, like as soon as the seance started, I was like, this is a grift. The thing is... I- I feel like on some level, I could have appreciated a grift that was better executed. I would have liked to have witnessed a skillful grift. Yeah. That's- and also one that was harmless, which I'm sure we'll yeah. get to. The- <laughs> this, yeah. is, this I wouldn't call harmless. This was neither of those things. The fast talking was such a giveaway. Like she was talking very fast and throwing a lot of information at you. But it gave you no chance to really think about it or question it. We were, like, always moving on to the next thing. She had a lot of props. She had some dowsing rods, which she would ask yes or no questions. That so she was clearly just moving herself. <laughs> she had a talking crystal ball that was, like, I don't remember what that talking ghost thing is called. But she had to somehow, like. Oh, the ghost up. box? I think it's called a ghost box. Except that she ended up using the one on her phone. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. Okay. So you might say, Liz, I don't believe in ghosts. Of course the woman holding the seance <laughs> was a con artist. And I would say, okay, but in contrast, we had just taken this ghost hunting class by these very sincere people. And maybe you don't believe in ghosts, but those people believe in ghosts. And I think that they are acting sincerely. This person <laughs> does, I don't know if she believes in ghosts or not, but she doesn't believe in a fucking thing she's talking about, and no, she is no. just a grifter. Yeah, and 
like and there wasn't an element of a class it no. was this was like i'm not even sure i could call this a seance because it was it was more like a fake psychic like where you're in an audience and sylvia brown is like calling on people <laughs> and asking the she would she started out like saying oh i'm i'm contacting this person whose name starts with a j i'm feeling someone who's like blah 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 but the because and i don't know if it was because of like the particular group or if it was because it was over zoom and zoom is awkward but like it was a quiet group and no one was really speaking up and being like oh and maybe or maybe we were all just expecting a class we weren't expecting a fake psychic i don't know but so then at, the, at one point she just kind of gave up on that and just started going around asking people, is there someone you hope to contact today? And they were like, and they would be like, oh, you know, my, my brother, whatever. And then immediately, no hesitation. She was like, oh yeah, yeah. he's here. And he wants you to know this. <laughs> it was just like so rapid fire. I'm like, wouldn't you pretend to like spend some time contacting like, oh, them? I'm getting, like- <laughs> I'm getting a, oh, maybe it's a, no, it was immediate oh yeah he's here he loves you he wants you to be happy next everyone got the answer they wanted the answer that they were looking for and that in and of itself was suspicious because i'm like there's no way that's how it would work some ghosts are gonna be busy and not gonna show up or like (laughs) it's gonna take you some time to contact them you have to bring them forward i don't know try a little harder it's just like oh yeah they're here they're standing right behind you uh, there okay. was no theatricality to it in a way. It's like I not just past Halloween, but the Halloween before, I went and attended a fake seance that was done in the Victorian style. And that seance was such a production. And honestly, I believed that one more, even though it was openly fake. <laughs> Because he put a lot of effort into sleight of hand and writing these things on chalkboards and just, like, the theatrics of it. This was none of that. It was literally, like, I'm getting an M. Anybody know anyone with an M? And then sometimes people were like, no. Like, <laughs> it would be the, the the most open, vague prompt or whatever you call it. Yeah, and Literally, then- someone whose name starts with an M. And there was, like... 40 people on the zoom call and, and they'd no be like no not i don't know any dead people with m or just be like the water i'm getting the water and everybody would be like uh, ooh, i don't know my uncle drank water like it was so <laughs> vague it was so vague at one that- point she said like i'm he had legs or something she, okay i samantha and i gave up very early in this we're just messaging each other back and forth and i was like did she seriously just ask did this motherfucker seriously just ask, did he have legs? Because she was like, I'm getting legs? And it was like really like, yes, yes, he had legs. I think it was supposed to be like, like maybe he injured a leg or something. I think maybe that's what she was going for. But because it, there wasn't an element of theatricality, it was just like, she was asking if he had legs. Did he? Ha- and then, I don't know. Can if you he imagine had- if he didn't, though? And she'd be like, no, you know, he didn't have legs. And then she was like, yes, that's what she would have been like, of course, that's what I'm getting at. Yeah, that's true. They were just vague enough that you could make it. He was one of those people that didn't have legs. I see it now. Um, Okay, so you're saying, Liz, what's the harm in this? Except that you were annoyed. (laughs) Well, the thing is, most of the people in this class that wasn't really a class had very specific people that they wanted to contact because they are still grieving and are clearly in a lot of pain. So... 
while I thought this would be like a fun afternoon exercise, it was actually uh, the saddest shit ever. It was sad. And I would even say like, you know, maybe if this brought them some level of closure or peace or whatever, then maybe that would be okay. Except that there were times where I was like, oh boy, this is this is not good. One person asked like about their deceased relative. They asked, Their question that they wanted to ask her was, was it an accident? I and know. she said no. And given that this was clearly a fraud, I'm like, what? I mean, you have a 50-50 chance. Maybe it was, maybe it wasn't, I guess. But like, what are you doing? You can't just say that to people. <laughs> because now what are they going to go forward and do with that information? Or maybe they'll be- they're going to believe something about their dead relative that maybe wasn't true. I- I'm- I don't know. That was just like... We can't be doing this. What are you doing? What are you doing? It was so. And it was sad. hard to sit through and listen to. Yeah, I mean, the only positive thing I can say about it is people did seem comforted by these. I would say very obvious lies, but people did seem comforted. They seemed to to take some solace in this information that people weren't in pain anymore and you know there's no time and space for ghosts so they're just like vibing everywhere <laughs> um and i hope it made those people feel better because it seemed like they were really struggling uh but goddamn was that not a fun time it was also like four hours long at one point i just it was not four hours long. It just felt like it was four it hours was long. At least two or three hours long. At one point, I, I was, was listening on my phone because I couldn't get my computer to work. And so I just put it on mute and went for a walk. I took my dogs for a walk and I was just listening to this. And I'm like, that's yeah. not, there's no way I'm speaking up. I, I was halfway tempted to, to ask if we could contact Robert Stack, just see what she would have said. But yeah, it was too sad. It was like almost too sad right. to, to, to do right. something like that. Even though it was clearly a grift, I'm like, I no, I'm just gonna put this on mute and listen until I can't listen anymore. It was tempting to like really point out that it was a grift, but also I didn't want to hurt people who were very sad. And so yeah, eventually I just kind of checked out and I was like, I hate this so much. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so I don't know. The cons continue, I guess. I guess. There's still those frauds. And some of them are really, they're not even trying. Like, no, they're a- just clearly moving dowsing rods to get a yes answer to a question that you obviously want to hear. Yes, he loved you. Okay, next question. Let's consult the rods. You literally can see her wrists moving. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Wow. That was really something. Mm-hmm. Okay, so let's t- let's talk about Unsolved Mysteries now, I guess. Yeah, we are on season six, episode 11. Okay. So I have the very first mystery. Um, This is for the investigators segment, which we get every so often, which is about the people who solve mysteries more than it is about the case. But this one's kind of about both, actually. Uh, The case takes place in San Francisco, California, December 1993. So we're learning about a man who supplied noodles to restaurants in Chinatown and ends up stabbed to death. And I was like, maybe I should get into the noodle game. Sounds delicious. I would eat more than I would actually (laughs) make it to the restaurants. 
So uh, there was no solution in sight for this case with this case. And the detective in charge had an unconventional approach. He ends up sharing the case file with college with a college class called Murder We Solve, which was correct, created by Professor Brooke Stewart. Uh, I'm so jealous of the people that get to take this class. Yeah, this sounds fun as hell. Way more fun than the cl- classes I took in college. Yeah. So um, this cl- this class or, you know, a previous version of this class had already helped solve one case, which was the slaying of a taxi driver in 1992. Um, so after working on this case for a year, Inspector... I wrote down his name weird. Inspector Sanders, I guess, um, was kind of at the, uh, you know, he'd worked on it for a year. He hadn't, he hadn't come up with a good lead. So he decides to bring it to this class and present it to them. And uh, this guy's got style also. He really does. And he's a good speaker. Like he was very engaging. He has a mustache and I called it the charmer. Nice. This This episode is chock full of mustaches. It really is. Oof. Okay. So he thought that working with the class would allow him to see the case with fresh eyes and maybe get him a, a, a lead that way. So the victim's name is Jin Frang, and he was 42 years old. He was the, a businessman and the o- owner of two noodle factories. And on December 18, 1993, he and an employee were attacked by a pair of assailants, and Jin died from stab wounds. So Inspector Sanders arrived at the scene at uh 1:30 a.m. and this is kind of the rundown of events. So the the rear window of Jin's van had been broken and the the van was ransacked. No fingerprints were found, but the murder weapon was left behind, which was a cheap steak knife, and he says something like it's all oh, it's clearly been washed like a 100 times. Like maybe it was used in a restaurant. It's like not new at all. Mm-hmm. Um they also were covered a revolver style BB gun and they were not sure at first if this was used in the assault, but it turns out that it is. So that night, Jin had offered a ride to one of the factory supervisors, Zing Sun. Shortly after midnight, they left work, they exited the building and entered um Jin's van, which seems like it was parked right outside. The window of the van was already no- broken, but they didn't notice. They drove about 100 feet before two men jumped up in the back of the van um, and started to demand money. Both spoke fluent Cantonese. Um, Yi was struck in the head with a gun and told not to r- turn around. Strangely, this robbery took place for half an hour, which is really a long time, as the assailants tore up the van and demanded, quote, the money. They seem to think that Jin had a large amount of money on him. Um, that doesn't seem to be true. So eventually one of the men stabbed Jin once directly in the heart. Oh my god. <laughs> so either you would think they are very skilled at the art of stabbing, or they just got really lucky. So the assailants ran off, telling Yi that they would kill her if she moved. So she stayed there in the van for two hours before daring to exit the vehicle and call the police. She didn't hear a car leave the scene. Okay, so I, after a little investigation, they find out that it is typical for Jin to have about $1,000 on him at the end of the day because he would go to restaurants and collect cash payments in person. There was also an anonymous tip to the police station saying that he was involved in gambling and may have collected debts. So there's some speculation that he was a bookie 
And apparently there was a rumor going around that he had $25,000 on him, which would make a little more sense. Right. So this is what's presented to the class. And then each student comes back with their theory of the case. Some of them did investigations on their own. Um, Some of them seem to have just made shit up based on what they thought might happen. Some of them were clearly treating this like a novel. And they were like, well, the best ending would be. But um, sadly, this exercise didn't work. Uh, There is no update to this. Um, It's kind of speculated that it was related to gambling. But honestly, I don't know that they ever found any like solid evidence about that. It remains unsolved. Yeah, I did think that some of the the students in the class did come up with some interesting theories especially the ones that actually went out there and like talked to like one of the students in the class had like a friend or relative who lived in Chinatown and so they went and talked to to that person and got some interesting information it's just a shame that it sort of never went anywhere yeah she went and learned sort of about like Chinese gangs and how some Vietnamese gangs were sort of um, up and coming and trying to make a name for themselves so maybe they would be acting more aggressively the thing is it's all just like total speculation it's not really necessarily connected to this case I don't think they were ever able to like track down the knife or and you know it was a BB gun and it wasn't a real gun right um I thought this was an interesting approach, though. Like, I like the way that the detective described, like, wanting to get different perspectives, which is, like, I don't know. It's not something you hear about. with (laughs) No. Like, like, oh, we're going to go out and seek, like, diverse opinions. And, like, maybe these young people will have some fresh ideas that I never would have thought of. And it sort of was true. Like, the person that went out and talked to their friend in Chinatown, that person told them, well, don't rule out Vietnamese gangs because they would be fluent in Cantonese, which is something that I think the police dismissed because the attackers were speaking right. Cantonese. So um, they, he was right in that they did bring some fresh ideas that they hadn't considered. So I really liked that. It's just, again, like kind of a shame that it didn't actually solve this case. I think that this detective clearly did really want to solve this case and, you know, was willing to put in the extra time and effort um yeah it's just never really panned out i wish i could take this class oh my god i would take it so seriously oh a hundred percent i would be like i'm solving this case (laughs) even though i don't know maybe it's unsolvable i'm not really sure yeah it's a shame and it doesn't seem like there's hard evidence so no yeah dang it sorry jen no I wonder what happened to his noodle empire. Yeah. Hopefully. Mm, Delicious. I know, right? All right. So this episode of Unsolved Mysteries is actually pretty full of mysteries. There's no unnecessary updates. Um, I know. This was a pretty good episode. I was happy about that. And our next uh, segment is a lost love. This is actually, they call it lost rescuers, which is really fun. Um, This case made me cry, but it's in a good way. Okay. Um, so we are looking for the saviors of Colleen Frangioni. I hope I pronounced her last name right. 42-year-old Colleen Frangioni is the mother of two sons who was paralyzed in 1978. She, at the time of this filming, had spent the past 15 years speaking to junior high students about seatbelt safety. 
Um, so, And she feels that through her speeches, she has helped save lives. And now she is searching for two men who saved her life during the accident that paralyzed her from the waist down. Do you know any older people that insist that they shouldn't wear a seatbelt because it's actually more dangerous? I have known people like that, yes. <laughs> I don't know why I find that so... F- it's just, like, clearly not true. Like, right. like vehicle accidents are so much less deadly than they used to be which also cars are just like built with more safety stuff but also like so fewer people end up going through the windshields of cars but there's i saw this twitter um conversation about like do you know any boomer who like insists that they know a person that would have died if they had been wearing their seatbelt and all these people were like oh my god yes It's so absurd too because it's like, well, what do you? Why do we think we wear a seatbelt? There's just big seatbelt is trying to yes, get our money yep. from us. It's um, the government yeah. is trying to control us by <laughs> restraining by, us in our cars or something by inserting some straps into cars. Yeah, it's just the 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 company that makes that fabric. <laughs> that seatbelt fabric, big seatbelt. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So this is what happened. On September 23rd, 1978, Colleen was returning home from a night out in Newport, Rhode Island. She was a single mom, and so she really never got to do a lot of stuff by herself. And this was sort of a rare evening where she got to go out dancing with friends. (laughs) (laughs) Unfortunately, just before 1 a.m., she was turning onto Rogers Road, uh, and she came to a complete stop. I'm not sure if it was a stoplight or a stop sign, but she was completely stopped. Unfortunately, a car filled with teenagers behind her did not stop, and they struck her from behind. Teens, get it together. I think she, I think from what I understand, it wasn't described super well, but I think the car hit her. It, tw- it like spun her car around and she hit another car. And this twisting motion, because she wasn't wearing a seatbelt, twisted her spine and caused two of her vertebrae to break and her spinal cord was severed. She was also knocked unconscious. And at this point, flames started to engulf the car she was in. And because she was unconscious, she was within probably minutes of dying. Uh, Patty and Joe Trifero, who lived like across the street, ran out and tried to help her, but she was like the the door was crushed. Um, and then also there was like flames everywhere, and so they really weren't able to get access to her. It I- seems pretty dangerous to even try to help her, honestly. If this reenactment is pretty accurate, like yeah. the the car is already on fire and it's probably pretty hot and. I think that's part of why they weren't really able to get at her was because they kind of had would have had to go through some flames. At this point, two men appeared and shouted for them to get a crowbar. They ran to their house, to their garage, to try and find a crowbar. Um, at this point, while they were gone, they believed that these two men pulled Colleen out and took her over to a nearby sidewalk. At this point, a third rescuer appeared, who was a woman who they believe probably had some medical training because she immediately took charge of the situation. She recognized that Colleen was going into shock. She told them to call 911 and elevate her legs, get a blanket. Um, at this point, uh, paramedics arrived and firefighters arrived in the scene kind of within minutes. Um, how At that point, the scene was so chaotic that the two men who had pulled Colleen out vanished. And Colleen was unconscious for the whole time, so she doesn't remember any of this. Well, also, you know, you are a hero. You pull someone from a burning building or burning car, sorry. And 
Like, how long are you going to stand around? Well, you're like, not really needed at that point. The paramedics are there. The firefighters are there. We meet. So, spoiler alert, they find these two guys and they don't seem, they're pretty unassuming guys. I don't think they were standing around to get accolades. They did what they did and they they left. And I feel you're like they like, standing there for three hours like him where's my medal (laughs) i'm the one that pulled her from the burning car thank you yeah that's not how these guys are and um but unfortunately that means that no one knows who rescued colleen um she regained consciousness and learned that she was paralyzed from the waist down four months later she was released from the hospital she went on to raise four months yeah Oh my goodness. Wow. Yeah, she went through I mean she went through all the physical therapy and everything and then um ended that up- hospital pill. Oh my god. <laughs> Holy shit. 4 months? Ay ay ay. I'm going to I'm going to wish I was still in that car. <laughs> <laughs> There's, I mean, it's true. It's really true. That's, and it's unfortunate that that's the first thing you think about. Because when I was watching this episode, too, I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> She's a single mom. Like, yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, dear Lord. I can't even imagine. So um, in 1985, she remarried. Uh, since the accident, she has always thought about the accident and the two men who helped save her life. Uh a priest gave Colleen's parents what they thought was the name of one of the men. He said it was oh. Ray Myers. Um, however, they couldn't find anyone with that name in the Newport area. Four years later, an acquaintance that Colleen met at a beauty salon told her that she believed the other man's name was John. His nickname may have been JJ, and he was in the Navy. He had apparently been transferred to the West Coast. Attempts to locate the man was unsuccessful. Is that so, even true? No, that was <laughs> I don't even know this person made it up. That's so weird. <laughs> None of that was true, including the name, the nickname. No, the people who rescued her were Ray Myers, so that was true, and Mike Kane. Oh, uh, Mike Mike has a mustache. I was just about to say, Mike Kane has an imposing mustache. Did you give this thing a name? The Walrus Deluxe. <laughs> we, you, you, if you've been listening to this podcast for a long time, you know we already had the Walrus. We can't have the Walrus again, but this is a very walrusy mustache. Yeah. And it is... Yeah, it is imposing. So I think the Walrus Deluxe is the only appropriate name. There was someone else who I think was a witness that I called Citizen Hero, who okay. had a smaller but very thick mustache. Yeah, Mike Kane's mustache is impressive. That uh, guy is committed. Like, he, that's not just like, I think maybe I'll have a mustache. Like, he's dedicating himself. To that oh, mustache yeah. that's oh, like yeah. a, that's like a marriage <laughs> yeah it's an impressive an impressive mustache so on the night of the broadcast both colleen's rescuers were watching the t- and called the telecenter uh like i said their names are ray myers and mike kane and they both live in providence rhode island and we got to see their reunion which is really sweet um colleen was so thankful to be able to thank them and these two guys like i said are just like they went on with their lives like they they did what anyone would do which i don't think is true but they you know they did what needed to be done and then they just assumed that they would never hear from this woman again especially mike kane he was like like a little bit suspicious he was like why does this woman want to talk to me and then he was like i don't know i talked to her she seemed really sincere that she just wanted to thank me i'm not really sure what (laughs) he was like 
this is a grift. This is a grift. This is a grift. And he's like, like he I guess I just like- asked for money or something. I don't understand what he thought this was until he met her and decided she was legit. One of these people, I think that, wait, it's Mike. And what's the other guy? Ray. I think she was talking to Ray on the phone for hours. Like she describes being in bed and her husband falling asleep because she's talking to Ray about like his whole life. And I feel like they've ended up becoming good friends. I think so. Which is kind of amazing. I'm not sure that I got the vibe that Mike Kane wanted to be friends, although I think he did appreciate no. being recognized. But Ray, yeah, in his sweet acid wash jeans. Um, Ray he- just wanted wanted someone to notice him. Yeah. And uh, he 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 found that. And Mike, his only friend is his mustache. He doesn't need any other friends. <laughs> it's true. It's really true. Uh, so that was this mystery. I thought, like I said, the reunion made me tear up. It was so sweet. Uh, Colleen, I mean, Mike's not wrong. She is very genuine. She um, is super sincere. Like, I'm not even sure I could handle it. So I, I do understand Mike's weariness a tiny bit. Also, Colleen, when we're talking about fashion later, is wearing the most amazing pink turtleneck that has these, like, jewels on the shoulder. Yeah. It's like a dress. It's a turtleneck dress. Oh, it's so good. It looks really good. So, so okay. Now we have a much sadder one. Now we move on to an unexplained death from going back to Thursday, January 12th, 1984. This takes place in Atlantic City, New Jersey. So seven-year-old Gary Grant Jr., which is not the name for a child, so just keep in mind that Gary Grant Jr. is seven. <laughs> You're going to have to keep reminding yourself. Before we get into how sad this is, how cute was this neighborhood? I at know. At the beginning of this, the reenactments. And the reenactments until, you know, everything goes to hell are pretty adorable. So Gary Grant Jr. had the day off school because it was like a conference day. He lived with his mother, May, who had been separated from his father, a police detective, for the past year. Obviously, his father is Gary Grant Sr. Okay. So, May, he, like, gets up, is having breakfast, and May asks Gary if he was going to go play with his friends. And he said no, because he had an appointment at 2.30. And when <laughs> What she- a thing for a seven-year-old to say. I know. It's so hilarious. I love when little kids are trying to act like adults and use, like, adult language. It's just the best. He's like, I have an appointment at 2.30. And I was like, Gary Grant Jr., we would have been friends. I have this very vivid memory of being on the school bus in, like, the fourth grade and telling another child to mind their own affairs. (laughs) That tracks. (laughs) And then being like, what are you talking about? Anyway, mind your own affairs. Okay. Um when may pressed him by what on earth a child had an appointment for he just said that it was a secret and she was like yeah yeah yeah, okay so he did get dressed and went to play around noon he said he would be back around four before dark for dinner and his mom emphasized he really did like dinner so he (laughs) would be back by 4 30 he still wasn't home and you know how this is gonna go May went to look for Gary at a friend's house, but was told that he had actually left around 4.30. When another two hours passed without hearing from Gary, she phoned her husband, Gary Grant Sr., the police detective. So Gary Grant Sr. actually called off work so he could go look for Gary Jr. Gary Grant Sr. has a mustache. It is the copiest mustache you ever saw, so it is called All Cats Are Beautiful. (laughs) 
Okay, Gary Grant Seniors has an impressive mustache in real life. And then the guy they get to reenact him has like an even bigger mustache. Yeah, yeah. I, I does that guy just play cops on TV? He must. He must. To to have invested in a mustache like that. So Gary Grant Sr. keeps looking for Gary Grant Jr. until two in the morning. By actual daybreak, the the police department is searching. Gary Grant Sr. obviously can't be a part of the official search, but he keeps looking on his own, like handing out flyers at the boardwalk, going to arcades, which someone had seen him at the arcade, but it was like earlier that day. So that didn't really lead to anything. By that night, there's this like horrible shift as it starts to get dark where he goes from looking at places where maybe Gary is still alive to looking at places where Gary would be dead, like alleys and dumpsters. <sighs> By 3.30 the following afternoon, the body of Gary Jr. was found in a vacant lot less than two blocks from his home. And I think... um I don't know if in the reenactment it's at the same location, but it sort of suggested that the reason his body wasn't found earlier is because there's a lot of weeds. Yeah, it was overgrown. I think Robert Stack did mention that. Yeah. Um, he had been bludgeoned to death. They also found a length of pipe at the scene that was assumed to be the murder weapon. Um, there's a really sad reenactment where Gary Sr., who's been driving around for like three days without sleeping, looking for his son, happens upon all these police cars by the house yeah. and has to be informed by officers that his son is dead. Well, it's horrible because so the police have found his body and then they issue a radio silence because they know he's yeah. still out there driving around his in his police cruiser. Um, so they issue this radio silence so they could try and get a hold of him and tell him. And then he happens upon the scene and he knew immediately what it was. Yeah. That's horrendous. It's really, really awful. So detectives investigating, um, started the way they would for any case by tracing Gary Jr.'s movements that the days prior to his death and talking to his friends. This led them to talking to Boo Mason. And at this point, I'm just going to warn you that there's some very dated language in this episode that you might find upsetting when we're talking about Boo. He was developmentally disabled. Um, he was 12 years old, but he was friends with Gary Jr. despite the five-year age gap. And he was actually smaller than Gary Jr., which is sort of relevant. Um, this... It really makes me angry because, at least in the reenactment, they talk to him without his parents. Yeah, they bring his him and his grandmother into the police station and then immediately separate them. Okay, well, first they go to his house. Oh, that's right. Yeah, and at, they, the, at the front door, they start talking to him. Yeah, they talk to him without a parent, which I think, I don't know, I don't know that you should be able to do that um and boo told the police that he had played with gary jr on wednesday but they were supposed to meet up on thursday and he never showed um at this point i just wrote down worst toupee ever and i think <laughs> that's so mean which was a journalist that we hear from okay whatever and then mac was like what's the best toupee ever and i was like i wouldn't know <laughs> That's if a good question. That's a good follow-up question. I have is a good if it's good if it's working. I wouldn't know about it. Okay, so they are at first satisfied with Boo's answer that he didn't see Gary the day of his death. However, after talking to a few more people, they decide that that's probably not true. So they go back to his house and they pick him up that night. He's accompanied as samantha was saying he's accompanied to the police station by his grandmother but as soon as they get there they separate them and they 
question blue alone for which, like hours which does not seem legal to me i don't know if the grandmother like consented to that she probably thought she had to i probably it's really it's really shitty okay so at some point boo supposedly said that he hit gary and gary didn't get up which in the episode they tell us as a detail only the killer would know except what boo tells us is that yeah everybody in the neighborhood knew about this knew what happened and had theories but also like the detail is he fell down and didn't get up but that's also just like he died what are you like what are you (laughs) talking only the killer would know that he was dead yeah Okay, anyway, so at this point, the police type up a confession for Boo and his grandmother to sign, and Boo signs it while insisting that he did not kill his friend. And I hope this reenactment is not totally accurate because the grandma signs it immediately, and I was like, bitch, you're selling out your grandson! I don't know that she was the best actress. She had, like, a vaguely surprised look (laughs) on her face. And she was just like, oh, better sign this. Look, probably she felt like she had to sign it. They didn't have a lawyer there. I don't know how old this grandmother is. They're in a, you know, the authority position telling her to sign it. It's really shitty, but things do not. I was like, great. We're going to see this kid get railroaded, but don't worry. It's not as bad as you think. He was charged with murder and sent to a juvenile detention center. Great. Um, We hear from an adult boo Mason who says he was told that if he confessed, he could go home which is something you've probably heard in other cases. Mm -hmm. And since he had been uh, interviewed for hours in the middle of the night and he's 12, he was super tired and he wanted to go home. So he was like, great, I'll confess and I'll leave. Well, but he confessed in a way that was like, okay, I'll tell you what you want to know, but I didn't do it. Because he did continue to insist that he didn't do it. He He basically just, I'm sure, repeated what they told him. And then also probably just rumors from the neighborhood. But at the same time saying, this is what I know, but I didn't do it. Yeah. He's basically saying, yes, Gary's dead, but I didn't kill him. He was my friend. Let me go home. Yeah. I'm 12. I'm 12 and handicapped and this is disgusting. Anyway, so um, Boo was given a polygraph that was inconclusive. However, when he was asked if he killed Gary and he said no, that part came up as true. Fortunately, the absolute blessing in this case is that when this is brought to court, a judge throws it out immediately. Yeah, it was immediately apparent that this was a coerced confession, which to me, I was like, I can't believe that ever happened in the history of our justice system. (laughs) I know. Someone recognized a false conviction, a confession, and threw it out. Amazing. At this, at this point, by season six, we have so little faith that we we're like, great, this kid's gonna get railroaded. It's gonna ruin his entire life. Well, probably. This, this interview it, with him is certainly from prison. They just let him put on a polo shirt. Yeah, exactly, exactly. That's what I thought too. But fortunately, the judge said no. This confession was not made voluntarily, and the charges were dropped. Hallelujah. Okay. So later, again, this is another instance where Unsolved Mysteries treats graffiti like it's a clue. And you go, no, literally anyone can write anything. That means nothing. But later, a cop car was vandalized to say, Gary Grant is dead and I am living. Another will die on January 12th, 86, if all goes right. And that would have been the second anniversary of his death. We hear from Gary Sr., who says that he believes this was an adult's handwriting and therefore wouldn't have been by Boo. 
Another message is later found on a sidewalk that says, Gary Grant Jr. lives, still I killed, still I killed him. Son of a bitch, son of a pig officer, payback is an MF. The great part about this is that you get to hear this read by Robert, Robert Stack. Stack. <laughs> so you get to hear Robert Stack say, payback, payback is, an is an MF. Which is now my new favorite thing. Um, Guess what? No update. This case is still unsolved. Oh, dang it. Which is very sad. We don't know why anyone would want to kill a seven-year-old. The theory is that this is somehow to get back at Gary Grant Sr., but even he's like, no one ever said, like, I'm going to get you back. Like, he doesn't have, like, a Joker <laughs> uh, nemesis that's been... That would be willing to kill a seven-year-old to get back at him. I don't know. There's been some, like, anonymous tips over the years. And let's see what this said. Um, Gary Sr. found a tape that contained two 911 calls about the case. The first one occurred on March 8th, 1986. The, killer, the caller claimed to be Gary's killer and asked about receiving a reward for turning himself in. He ended the call by stating they would never catch him. The second one occurred on June 2nd, 1986. The caller claims that Gary's killer had confessed to him. He claims that Gary's killer had committed the crime because of an arrest by Gary Sr. The caller has never been identified and it is unknown if he is actually involved in Gary's murder. Gary Sr. still believes that Boo Mason has some involvement in Gary's death. He believes it is most likely he witnessed the attack or knows the perpetrator. However, no evidence has ever been found to link him or anyone else to the crime. I think if Boo knew the perpetrator, he would have told them who it I, was. I absolutely agree. I think that he cared about his friend and wanted to help um, and almost got railroaded for this crime he had nothing to do with. Yeah. Um, anyway, ugh, sad case, but at least we didn't get to see a 12-year-old chewed up by the system um yeah okay that one was a, an interesting case and this next one is also quite interesting this last one is wild this is bananas so this is a missing person but it's also kind of an unexplained death so this yeah. we're looking for hugh harlan who uh just picture in your head dear listeners like <laughs> a fisherman like but the fisherman like but also this fisherman is a huge pothead <laughs> yes. he's Just like put those two people together in your mind and i guarantee you're imagining hugh harlan right now if the gordon's fisherman took some time off fishing to follow around the grateful dead <laughs> it would be this guy Yes. So Hugh Harland is missing. Uh, Robert Stack says, on the surface, Morro Bay, California is a picture postcard seaside fishing village. But this charming town holds the secret to a murder or perhaps two. Dun dun dun. So Hugh Harlan is a well-known resident of Morro Bay. He sometimes worked as a fisherman. They tell us that Hugh fished when the spirit moved him. <laughs> I'm guessing he maybe had another source of income. Possibly. Possibly. Uh, Morrow Bay uh, businesswoman and resident Catherine Cordero is interviewed throughout the show. She uh, tells us a little bit about Hugh and my favorite quote possibly ever on Unsolved Mysteries she gives us about Hugh. 
She says, he wasn't just a weirdo. <laughs> he might have been weird at times, but he wasn't a weirdo. Don't dismiss him, Samantha. He wasn't just a weirdo. Look, the guy was weird as hell, but <laughs> he was also a human being. Yeah. <laughs> so, I think that's what people were going to say about me after I'm dead. Oh, Liz, she wasn't just a weirdo. Sure, she was kind of a loner. Yes, she talked about unsolved mysteries too much, but she was a human being with thoughts and feelings of her own. Yeah, I, I don't quite know how to square. He wasn't a weirdo. He may be weird, but he wasn't a weirdo. <laughs> but it's just really a funny way to describe someone. But I mean, in, also in a way, it seems like really accurate <laughs> for this yeah. man. Yeah. But anyway, I don't really know how to explain that. So she was also like a local businesswoman. She said that he would stop by and sometimes he would just pitch up his his sleeves and and, and help out. Um, you know, and sometimes that meant that their work went, just happened to go on for six, seven or ten hours and he just stuck around and, and helped out. Um, he wouldn't even take any money for his help. Uh, that's when she what? calls him weird. When the spirit moved him. Yeah. So he would go down and he would fish when he felt like it. And he did bring in, it seemed like, enough money to get by. However, his wife, uh, Di- Diane, um, Robert Stack says, squandered what little money he earned. Bitches be shopping. <laughs> well, it's so it seems like she would tisk, tisk, spend tisk, all this tisk. money. At, so she was known around town as a, the dog lady. She loved these dogs she had. And it seems like would just spend all her money on the dogs. and then. Like maybe that's what didn't... people are gonna say about us, Samantha. Probably, honestly, probably. No. Uh, so they, uh, she, they're described as not getting along very well. And then Diane would apparently do bizarre things, including opening a can of dog food and serving it to Hugh for dinner. I don't know. Maybe he had it coming. Maybe apparently she like he got wise to that and was like, "Why are you feeding me dog food?" So she like would cook it in a casserole. <laughs> Okay, look, I'm not sure this woman was entirely well. No, I don't think so. It is odd. This whole segment is odd. It's a little odd. And I do think you're right. I think, Diane, we might be dealing with some, you know, untreated mental illness on Diane's part. Uh, But for some reason, cooking dog food into a casserole because he was he didn't like you just plopping some dog food onto a plate and giving it to him. So he cooked it into a casserole. She was like, I know what to do. Somehow that's so funny to me, but look, maybe she didn't give her money for food, and they had dog food, and she was like, "I'm gonna make this work somehow." It could be, yeah. We don't get like the story directly from them, uh. So it seemed that uh, Diane, this is according to Robert, that cared more for her dogs than she did for Hugh. In fact, around town, she was known as, like I said, the dog lady, and this is, I don't know, seems true. She probably did care about her dogs more. On October thirteenth, nineteen eighty-two, the badly decomposed body of a woman was found just off the beach at Morrow Bay. Mm. Police could not identify her, but they could identify the murder weapon, which was a dog leash. She had been strangled with it. This seems like something from a book. Honestly, it kind of does. And this is like the setting of a cozy mystery. Don't you think? Like this Morrow Bay, California, where people just fish when they feel like it? Absolutely. So this almost doesn't seem real, but it is. 
So the investigators put out a news media release with a description asking for the public's assistance, identifying the, the deceased woman. Later in the evening, the department was contacted by Hugh Harlan. Hugh Harlan was shown several pieces of jewelry, and he identified the jewelry as belonging to his wife, Diane. I was wondering about this. This happens in mysteries where pe- family members are asked to identify jewelry. And I asked Mac, like, would you be able to identify my jewelry if I'm dead? He was like, some of it. <laughs> And I was like, yeah, it would really help if I owned less jewelry. And then I was like, if I have to do this for my mom, man, oh, man, mom, that jewelry collection might be your downfall. Well, I'll be like, I think so. <laughs> it's seems, really true. Seems like her colors. And see, my problem is I don't wear jewelry, really. Oh. I mean, my wedding ring, I guess you could, I mean, probably identify me from that. But otherwise, I wear hardly any jewelry. So I guess no one's going to be able to identify my dead body. You got tattoos. It's fine. That's true. Uh, so Hugh told police that Diane had been away from home for 12 days. But he said that he wasn't worried until he heard about the body because she was known to occasionally disappear for long periods of time. She was like, look, she didn't really like me. So <laughs> she just left for a while. It wasn't it was- that unusual. For yeah, it was cool. Off. It was cool. So what I think should have concerned him, though, was that apparently the day she disappeared, he said that the dogs came home without her and without their leashes on, which I don't mm. know if that was normal. It seems like it wouldn't be like if if look, I love my dogs more than most people. And if you find my dogs, just like if they just come home without me one day. <laughs> You should yeah, worry. Yeah. You should be worried. I would think Diane would not like just let her dogs wander around town by herself if she loved them this much, but I have I don't know. We I don't think we we're getting all the details. So but according to the reenactment, at least like he kind of threw that piece in there that the, the dogs didn't have the leashes on because they were at they were the investigators were getting suspicious and they were like, well, what about this dog leash? And he's like, oh, now that you mentioned it, when the dogs came home, they weren't wearing their leashes. And they were like, the investigators were like, really? So he also changed his story several times. At this point, they decided to look, they began to look more closely at Hugh as a possible suspect. Is it also possible that Hugh was just high? <laughs> I think maybe he was always high. <laughs> because at some point, this guy like, mentions that from time to time he was known to smoke pot and i was like oh really (laughs) you don't say yeah i'm not sure there was ever a time this guy wasn't high to be frank so that might have been part of the issue probably so uh catherine cordero who i mentioned before apparently went and talked to him herself to decide if he had killed his wife um and she was like i just asked him flat out hugh you know a lot of people are suspecting you did you kill her (laughs) i know she was bizarre and i know she tried to push your buttons did you do it which yeah is quite bold uh but he told her he didn't and she believed him i mean he said he didn't do it so there you go facts yeah so police actually eventually did rule out hugh as a suspect and i think but we don't know why I don't Why? Know if there's just hardly any evidence, or I'm not sure exactly how they ruled him out. Maybe he had an alibi. I'm not really sure. Um, although she was gone for 12 days, I don't know. Maybe they figured out the time of death. I don't know. We're not given a ton of information. Well. Then on November 1st, 1986, Hugh went to a friend's house to borrow some tools for a construction job he was doing up the coast. He set out for San Simeon, about 27 miles north of Morro Bay. Hugh's friend, Steve. Matthew Matthew uh, said he soon received a disturbing phone call. 
which was from a mutual friend in Cambria, wondering why Hugh's truck was sitting off on the side of the road and had been there for several days. Hmm. So this was obviously made them nervous. They, um, they got a couple of friends and they went out to check on the abandoned truck. They looked around, they saw his glasses on the dash. They saw a couple of tins on the dash. Uh, one was what did they say they said it was tobacco and ragweed it was like some braggedy weed he was known to (laughs) have for time to time something like that so i think the most suspicious thing is he left that behind but um that's a really good point So they said that uh, all of these things weren't adding up. And then they also, as they were looking around, saw the keys in the bushes, like a little way. Okay, the, the reason they found those keys was because that guy was going to go piss there. And then he was like, oh, these are the keys. Except they said it in this, like, I don't remember. Who's going to I don't remember. himself in the bushes? They, they said it in some, like, polite way. But it was basically like, when the guy went to pee in the bushes, he found the keys. It was lucky, I guess. So the question is, did Hugh Harlan meet with foul play or did he choose to disappear because he killed his wife? Now, I think, I mean, we don't really know. And this case is completely unsolved. Actually, Diane's Diane's murder and Hugh Harlan's disappearance is completely unsolved. I looked at the Unsolved Mysteries wiki and there's nothing. Very strange. Who knows if he just vanished into thin air? I, I sort of feel like he had been ruled out as a suspect. I guess I don't know why he would decide at this point to just disappear. It's but been it's also four suspicious years. that both him, his, yeah. his his wife was murdered, and then he disappeared. Like I don't know; these don't strike me as people that would have a lot of enemies. <laughs> so that it's is so- weird. It's like, someone that got fed dog food back for revenge. Why would he abandon his weed? That's really the thing that gives me pause. Also, the truck has value. Like his his friend, the person saying he's not just a weirdo, is like, if he was gonna leave, he would have given the truck to someone to have. He wouldn't just abandon it. Yeah, they said he was the type of person that would have like helped someone out by giving them his truck. Or well, he could have sold it, right? Like, yeah, why just money? Not just throw the keys in the bushes. Go, someone will pee on these. Um. <laughs> It's very odd. It has the setup of a cozy mystery, but no resolution. So, yeah, which is damn. It's frustrating because there's clearly something intriguing going on. Someone should write the fictionalized version of the story. And there's also a mustache in this segment. Manny Silva, oh, investigating yeah. the face in some way, has a mustache that sort of all shifts to the left mm-hmm. so yeah, mac even out that mustache manny mac called it lefty <laughs> nice it also had a stingray shape i wanted to call it a stingray obviously i've already called a mustache that so i ended up calling it the sting raw which is one of my <laughs> laziest moments of all time <laughs> yo it's not the stingray it's the sting raw Nice. Oh, nice. that's very good. That's very good. No, it's not at all. But <laughs> that brings us to the end. This one's fascinating. This is one where I feel like when people ask, like, are there any mysteries that you would love to like? Like, yes, what would you want I want to know. I, I really want to know what happened to these people. Same with Jin, man. I want to know what happened to this guy and his noodle empire. Yeah. Okay, so we're at the end. It's time to rate it. Yes, mysteriousness very mysterious it was a very mysterious one and remains mysterious to this day actually every 
every segment that wasn't uh, heroes pulling someone from a car, not solved. We have no idea what happened. We don't know what happened to Jen. We don't know what happened to Gary Jr. And we don't happen to know what happened to either of these people in this last mystery. Could not be more mysterious. Yep. Uh, two thumbs up for mysteriousness. Oh, absolutely. And then reenactments, I feel like we're also really good. Solid, I think. Um, I liked the ones in Chinatown. I think the ones with Gary Jr. were all very sad, but sort of adorable. And then the thing of his dad coming upon the scene was so heartbreaking. Mm-hmm. Ugh. And then these ones with the coast just have some great, uh, yeah, cozy mystery type vibe. She's like out walking the dogs along the beach. Yeah. And also in the um the Lost Love, they had like so they did the mystery and then at the end they had this like montage set to music of like the car accident. It was very dramatic. Oh, yeah. yeah. Which that was completely an aesthetic choice on Unsolved Mysteries part. It didn't really add to but it was well done. I think maybe they just maybe sunk some money into that that car accident. Oh, sure, absolutely. Yeah. They wanted they're to get like, a little more mileage out of it. They're like, We set something on fire. You are looking at that again. So that, um, was, that was good. Thumbs up. Yeah. I feel like I have to give it a thumbs up for fashion, too. I mean, we usually include mustaches in fashion, and this is a smorgasbord of mustaches. You couldn't get more mustaches. Plus, we have the detective in the first mystery wearing, I don't know, what I want to describe as a pimp hat. <laughs> Just like a like a formal men's hat with a big feather in it. <laughs> So that's great. There was also multiple turtlenecks. Yeah, and some of them jeweled. I mean, come on. What more could you possibly want? This has it all. It it truly does. And then Robert Stack. Okay, you're going to say, Liz, he wasn't in this that much. Yes, but we got the phrase uh, (laughs) that payback is an MF. (laughs) Said in Robert Stack voice. My new... still an age where you picked wacky things to be your ringtone if we still like even allowed our phones to ring my ringtone would be robert stack saying payback is an mf can i get someone to teach me how to do like audio drops like i need some of these quotes to just be like i can just press a button and it'll just be robert (laughs) stack saying payback is an mf like when someone gets arrested or something and we're talking about it i can just hit a button (laughs) Payback is an MF. Uh, so obviously he gets a thumbs up just for that. 100%. Yeah. Okay, so what are we going to rate this episode? It's on a scale of five Robert Stacks. Obviously, five Robert Stacks is the best. I wouldn't put this at a five. Five is reserved for, oh, I don't know, the rat- magic rock. Five is, it's never going to get better. It blo- five is you're going to force your friends to watch it. <laughs> that actually really is. <laughs> how we determine what is the five does i mean does it belong in the louvre should you be looking going into the louvre to see mona lisa winged victory and a segment from unsolved mysteries <laughs> would you put this in there ah, no but it is very, this is a solid episode very mysterious well done segments no filler I'm sorry. I just have this picture in my head that's just like panning from the Mona Lisa over, and it's just a framed picture of that guy looking at the magic rock in his cop uniform. <laughs> it's not even like a video, it's just a still. Just that. <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, you're right. This isn't bad, but it's pretty good. Um, is it a four? Is it a three and a half or a four? Oh, I, I think it's, it's a four. 
I think it is really good. I, I would love to be in this class that gets to solve mysteries. I'm glad that this kid, Boo Mason, didn't get railroaded for a murder he didn't commit. So that was a relief. Um, plus, someone got fed dog food. I mean, there's just some surprises. <laughs> there's this stoner fisherman. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's also super mysterious and there's no unnecessary update. Yeah. So it was this a good is, episode, actually. This is why we do this. Yeah, agree. Only they could all be this good, but there's just not that many. No, I'm mystery. sure next week we're going to be back telling you this sucked. <laughs> why do we do this? I hate everything. Yes, but this was this was quality. I highly recommend watching this one. Agreed. Me too. Okay, so now we like to wrap up the show with a little palate cleanser, a little recommendation of how you can waste more time and i have a a fun tv recommendation which also sort of ties into our first mystery uh only because they both take place in san francisco chinatown so i just finished watching uh the tv show warrior which was originally on cinemax but you can now watch it on hbo max it is a show that takes place in 1870s San Francisco Chinatown. Uh, and it is about Chinese immigrants coming into the country, forming Chinatown and uh, sort of racism and power struggles from that. But really, it's an excuse for nudity and kung fu fighting and also for reminding you that racism is bad. And I like all of those things. I have relearned recently that, in general, I'm not really looking for a movie or a TV show with fighting. But if you tell me that the people in the fight are horrible racists, I'm a lot more invested. That sounds, it's, it sounds really cathartic, honestly. It is so satisfying when you see people who have been established as horrible racists just get their asses handed to them. Ugh. <laughs> It's similar to how in John Wick, you appreciate that his motivation is for his dog, right? Right. And then you're like, all of this is justified. <laughs> I understand now. And in this, you're like, yes, get those racist assholes. Oh, so good. So the main character is Assam, who has just immigrated to the United States, to San Francisco. Who's, he's looking for his sister, who had immigrated a few years earlier. And that, of course, immediately goes to hell. So it's about him being forced to join one of the gangs in Ch Chinatown and they're sort of rival gangs and they're fighting all the time. So you have that storyline. You have the storyline of the cops that have to like walk the Chinatown beat and how like bad they are at their jobs. And you have the Irish immigrants who are mad that they're being replaced. They're, they're not being hired anymore because people are hiring Chinese immigrants and paying them less. So there's like tension there. There's like the mayor and the rich people, whatever. Mostly there's a lot of cool fighting. There's amazing costumes. The woman that runs the brothel. Oh my God. The looks that she serves. She gets, she keeps coming down this like, amazing staircase in the like most fabulous gowns i've ever seen and i might be in love with her oh sounds amazing it's really fun i really a lot of the characters are really fun some of the like rich people storylines i'm like whatever i don't care who gets this like every so often it's like almost trying to pretend it's prestige television and it's like let's talk about who gets this 
contract to make the cable cars and you're like i don't care more sex and fighting (laughs) but (laughs) that is most of it uh there's only two seasons it looks like production got stopped for covid and i'm not sure it's gonna be picked back up which is kind of sad because i would watch more but it was a good time i enjoyed myself it sounds like i said extremely cathartic yeah, it is. And all the food looks really good. So that's one issue is that it made me really hungry. I was going to say, that sounds like a problem because it's going to make me want to eat some delicious food. Yeah. That's an awesome recommendation. What are you going to recommend this week? So it was recommended. This book was recommended to me by friend of the pod, Rob, from the podcast Our Strange Skies. He's been on our show a few times. We've been on his show. Lots of fun. He reads a lot. And so I knew that he was the person to go to for book recommendations about sharks which uh, is, yes yes for some reason something i want to read about lately we for our book club recently read a fictional book that sort of had sharks in it sort of didn't i actually didn't finish the book uh maybe because it just wasn't scratching that itch for some reason i'm like i really need <laughs> yeah. to read about sharks <laughs> and this doesn't have enough sharks in it You've had this like unquenchable thirst for some sort of shark novel and have just been demanding people rock and everybody's just like Jaws and you're like, no, not that one. A different shark book. And everybody's like, I'm sorry, Samantha. I don't think I've read a different fictional book about a shark. But yeah, you just I've you done can't some, be satiated. I, I've done some Googling and I, I have a few books lined up, but I really wanted someone to recommend something that's that they you know was really good because I've been burned before. Like there was a time where I was trying to find books about killer squid and I read several and didn't like any of them. So I want to I don't want to be wasting my time with these bad killer shark books. <laughs> I want a good one. So Rob didn't have any fiction recommendations, but did have a recommendation for a nonfiction book uh, about a shark attack, a series of shark attacks actually. And it is the book Close to Shore by Michael Capuzzo. Rob recommended this to me literally yesterday. I'm almost done with the book. It's really, really good. Yeah, I was like, how are you recommending us? Because <laughs> I'm almost done. I have like, wow. I'm listening to the audiobook and I have like maybe an hour left, maybe 30 minutes. It's, it's a short book too. It's, it's not super long. Um, but I listened to it yesterday while I was doing stuff around the house. Very much enjoying it. Uh, for some reason, it's... Th- the sound of this audiobook has like an old timey radio sound. I don't know if it's nice. like if it's just this narrator or what, but it's it really adds to it because the events that uh, took place this the events of this these shark attacks took place in 1916. So the old timey sound of this audiobook, I think, is, is kind of adds to the experience. But this is the a series of shark attacks that inspired. So this is inspired Jaws. Um, so they were. Uh, Shark attacks that happened along the Jersey shore of the United States in 1916. And what I found the most interesting about this book. So first of all, the book is really well written. Rob recommended it because he said it reads like a thriller. And that's really true. It, feels like fiction because the narrator paints these really vivid pictures about like what everyone looked like how they like society is changing like women are starting to swim in the ocean which was previously scandalous and like starting to wear like bathing suits which was unheard of and like so he paints this picture about a society that's changing and like how like especially along the ocean like how like swimming in the ocean ties into these ideas of like masculinity it's it's very fascinating and I will say it starts a little, out a little bit slow because he does paint this really vivid picture about what's going on, but I enjoyed it. Um, and then you get into the shark attacks, which he describes in a way that's like 
I don't know. If, if you're afraid of sharks, this is probably not the book for you. <laughs> Obviously, you're probably not going to pick this up anyway. But they're very frightening. And so this was a, a thought to be a rogue shark that was... <laughs> <laughs> it was a shark that wouldn't play by the rules. True. If on the, so that's you laugh, but that's actually true. Like they think, like researchers have researched this like series of shark attacks and they think it was one shark who basically discovered that there was no competition for human meat. <laughs> like other sharks weren't going after humans. And so this was like easy prey. And also what fascinated me the most is like how much it took for the people in the United States to believe that it was a shark that was doing this. Like, I feel like I think about sharks and like how afraid people are of sharks now. And you think about it as being very illogical because shark attacks are so infrequent, but it was almost like the reverse back then where they were Mm. convinced this was a tuna, like a giant tuna or it was a a turtle. Yes. Like, like everyone was like, they couldn't be sharks. Sharks don't attack humans. Sharks are timid. Sharks are afraid of people. Like there's no way like, fishermen who lived who basically lived on the ocean were like sharks don't wouldn't attack people they're more afraid of people than we are of them like this had to have been a a a swordfish (laughs) is what everyone said no one believed that it was a shark for the longest time yeah which is so ironic to me because jaws is kind of what tipped us over the edge the other way and everyone became terrified of sharks and this like real life event is what inspired jaws so i thought that was super fascinating um so yeah if if for some reason you're like me and are really interested in reading a story about sharks i demand to read about (laughs) sharks uh have we looked into the turtles in the area though that's so funny. It's, it is funny because, like, the so, so, so trigger warning, this is going to be gory, but, like, some of these people were, like, very horribly attacked, like, bitten in half. And people were like, well, it must, it couldn't have been a shark, it must be a turtle. <laughs> <laughs> I want to meet that turtle. It's the most big-ass turtle. Yeah, fascinating. Oh, I did forget to say one thing for my recommendation that I wanted to, which is that this is sort of based on a proposal Bruce Lee had made. He had shopped the idea of a show set in early Chinatown around to a few networks. And so this is kind of based on his idea, which I think is interesting. Um, it sort of seems like he pitched the show, everybody passed, and then someone kind of stole his ideas to make the show Kung Fu. Mm-hmm. Um, so that sucks. But uh yeah i just wanted to add that that note of credibility that it is bruce lee connected very nice very nice yeah that's it that's all i got all right i think that is time to bring the episode to a close and remind you that you're gonna want to slam that subscribe (laughs) button you're gonna want to sprain your finger, scramp, slamming that subscribe button. Solid. <laughs> yeah. Slam that subscribe button. Oh, we would love a five star review on any platform that you can give us a review. Uh, we have a website, perhaps it's you.com. You can, I don't know, find contact info and some of our recommendations there. Social media, that's still a thing. There's Twitter, there's Instagram, we have multiple Facebook groups join us we have a lot of fun if you have a few extra dollars burning a hole in your pocket you can send it to us uh via patreon and you'll get access to a backlog of almost 40 bonus episodes at this point that's wild yeah. how have we been doing this for so long how have we learned so little it's i don't know it's but people are giving us money so 
think about that if you got some extra money if you could spend a little bit more and you can get coloring sheets every month they're um super cute i have it on a good information that our next coloring sheet is going to be adorable it's so gorgeous you're gonna love it it's by a guest artist it's really something yeah so you're gonna want to be signed up for that i recently learned that one of my favorite bad movies octopus 2 river of fear <laughs> is available on 2b tv should we and do I, that as a patreon bonus episode I'm very tempted to make you watch it and we do that for patreon content i think maybe we should wait until we could watch it together i was just about to say it would be way better if we could watch that at your house so maybe we'll wait you know to be fully vaccinated and then just just think about this title octopus 2 river River. Well, I understand it without having seen Octopus One. Yeah, Octopus One is just octopus attacking people, and it's also quite bad. But it's not the gem. Okay. The Octopus Two. Hold on, and don't spoil anything. But you're saying Octopus One is just octopus attacking people. Look, if you octopus want to watch, Two is more than that. Yeah, it is. It's a very complex plot. Like what's going on? Does <laughs> the octopus fall in love? Is it like King Kong and just Godzilla? the fact that there's a killer octopus in a river just from the title it's already not just a killer octopus killing people in a river versus an ocean you're gonna have to see all right it's it's really fast forward to us covering this and i'm like this is a masterpiece (laughs) (laughs) yeah somehow i doubt it um now i'm kind of really excited to do that gotta get that vaccine God, hook it to my veins. Okay. All right. Thanks, everybody. Bye. Keep barking.